morning. Today is an exciting day because it is the Lord's Day. We wait all week for this, right? Right? Okay, thank you. Just checking. It's also Tri-State Sunday, and I am very excited to be a part of that. Looking forward to another great lesson for Brother Kirk Amarine. He always blesses me when he preaches, and I'm grateful for that. Certainly grateful for all of the help and all of the food and everything that's gone into putting this together. And as I have said before, said just in the Bible class this morning, the investment that you are making in these young people's future has the potential for priceless benefits lifetimes away. And so I am so grateful for that. This year's tri-state theme is knocking on heaven's door. Knocking on heaven's door, and it is based on Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, which most all of you know. Each lesson this year, in each of the different congregations, each lesson is going to, or is, is entitled, with the phrase beginning, behind door number. So this session will be behind door number two, and there's a title that goes with it, and We'll go through the rest of the list at various congregations behind door number three and door number four and all of that. So as I got to thinking about that, I was reminded of the old show from whence that theme comes, Let's Make a Deal. How many of you remember Monty Hall? Some of you hands went up that were a little bit younger than I would have expected, but with TV and all of that, YouTube and some of these channels, I imagine some of you know who Monty Hall is. As you will recall, the way that that game show started was that people, contestants, would be called down out of the studio audience. And they would come down front and they would be given something of value. And then they would be asked if they'd like to trade away that something of value that they had for what was behind door number one or door number two or door number three. And they didn't know what was behind those doors. So you might come down front and, you know, Monty or somebody might give you 500 bucks. Then say, but, do you want this, or would you like to trade it away for what's behind door number thus and such, one, two, or three? And you know, sometimes the doors would go up and people trade away $500 for a goat, you know? And sometimes they'd keep the 500 or whatever, and it'd be something else behind there. But that's kind of the way the show worked. And so, as I got to thinking about that, I got to thinking about us. You know, all of us have, who are Christians, have been called out of the world. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. We have been called out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved Son, where we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. We've been called out of the world. That's what the word ekklesia, that is the Greek word that is translated church a lot in the New Testament, it means the called out. So those of us who are Christians, we've been called out of the world. Just like on the show, they're called out of the audience. And so we've been called out of the world, and we have been given something priceless. We have been given forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That is what we have in our possession. We have forgiveness. We have God's grace. We have God's word. We have God's mercy. We have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But all of our lives, and again, our young people need to be acutely aware, deeply and intensely aware, that all of our lives 
Satan relentlessly keeps saying, boy, have I got a deal for you. How would you like to trade away what you've been given in Christ? Let's make a deal. What do you think? Boy, have I got a deal for you. And so just as Satan tried in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 with Jesus, wherein he was unsuccessful to get Jesus to trade in obedience to God for anything, but just like he tried with Jesus there, Satan tries to get us to trade away this priceless gift that we have been given in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he tries to get us to trade it for something that is not only worth less, but for something that is absolutely worthless. Something that cannot save us. Something that will wind up costing us, indeed, everything in the end. You know, there have been some deals made in the secular world. I didn't say real world, but there have been some deals made in the secular world over the past decades and centuries that seem pretty ridiculous now when we stop and look back on them. For example, in 1803, Thomas Jefferson began dealing with Napoleon, Napoleon I, for what wound up becoming known as the Louisiana Purchase for $15 million. Think about that. The Louisiana Purchase, think of real estate prices today, right? The Louisiana Purchase was for the greater part of 13 states, 800,000 square miles for $15 million. We look back on it now, we think it's pretty ridiculous, don't we? Some pro athletes today make twice that much per year prior to endorsements per year. $15 million for 800,000 square miles, the better part of 13 states. That was a bad deal for somebody. In 1867, another deal that seems ridiculous now, to one side, only 150 years ago, the United States purchased Alaska. Where would we be without all those Alaska shows on TV? <laughs> the United States purchased Alaska 150 years ago for 7.2 million. That's it, a scant 7.2 million. 591,000 square miles of majesty and splendor known as Alaska. They purchased it from Russia for 7.2 million, largely due to the efforts of Secretary of State Seward. And when he made that deal, it was called Seward's Folly. Who would spend 7.2 mil for a place like that? And yet think of the richness of Alaska. Think of where we would have been if that deal had not been made during the Cold War, if Russia, Russia's southernmost point, the southernmost point of Alaska, was only about 600 miles north of Washington State. That's how close Russia would have been. So we look at those things, and I know we can say, hey, look, that money was, you know, it wasn't the same a long time ago. But even adding in inflation, Alaska for 7 mil? Say 7 mil is a lot of money. Yeah, it is, but again, when you got pro athletes that are signing deals for $30 million a year for eight, 10 years, seven million isn't that for the whole state of Alaska. 
Perhaps one of the worst deals in the world was when the Indians sold Manhattan Island for 24 bucks. Think about that. Manhattan Island, $24. And as with most other major deals, you know, it's not always readily apparent how good or bad they are. Most times we have to wait a while to see, and sometimes when we figure out, and time has gone by, and we figure out whether that deal was really good or not, by then it's too late. Because we are locked in, and we have been had. Please open your Bibles this morning to Genesis 25. In the Bible, there were some disastrous deals made. There were some disastrous trade made, trades made. Even though they may have seemed like a good idea at the time, and here's the thing. Most of these deals that Satan offers us to surrender up our relationship with God, to surrender up this priceless gift of forgiveness that we've been given, most of these deals, the way he twists them and perverts them and presents them, they might even look, they're tempting, I mean, let's face it. And after all, you know, heaven is so far away, we think, and we forget that we have a relationship with God right here, and he makes it look so good. Might even seem like a good idea at the time. But this morning, I want to take a look at several of these deals. I want us to notice what the circumstances were, number one. What led those people to make such devastating and deadly deals, number two and what we can do to help us avoid making such costly deals with the devil. I'd like to begin with the story of Jacob and Esau. You ever thought about that? Just think of that line. I'd like to begin with the story of Jacob and Esau. Why don't we say the story of Esau and Jacob? We never say that. Why don't we? We should. Or we could have, if not for these events we're going to read about. We list Jacob first, even though he wasn't the first between the two. But there's a reason for that. It's because of the deal that was made in Genesis 25. Let us begin in verse 19. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old. Verse 20 now of Genesis 25. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah's wife daughter of Bethuel the Syrian of Padam Aaron, sister of Laban the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. So, when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb, the first came out red. Now, now remember, <laughs> with the Jews, the first one out, the firstborn, this was everything. This was highest importance. We're going to look at some of the things that the firstborn had, and so please notice with me for sure that the first one came out red, he was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Esau was first. So Esau being first, and the way Jews placed importance on the firstborn, you would think that we would say the story of Esau and Jacob, but we never do. It's always Jacob and Esau. Here's why. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old, when she bore them. 
So the boys grew, and Esau, the oldest, was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Please notice, Scripture says that Esau was a skillful hunter. He was a sportsman. One commentator I read said, Esau was one addicted to running through fields in search of sport, an indication of the rough, fiery nature and wild, adventurous life of Esau. Contrast that with Jacob. Jacob was a mild man. You could say Jacob was a mild man while Esau was a wild man, but Jacob, the Bible does say, was a mild man. He was quiet, gentle, apparently loved to be home, wasn't into all the adventurous life that his brother was. He was the antithesis of Esau. We read on in verses 29 and 30. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. He was weary. I want us to think about that. He was faint. He was weary. He was exhausted. The New American Standard Bible translates that Greek word famished. He was famished. Very hungry. It's like working all day out in the field or working and using up all this energy. You come in and just really, really hungry, weary, exhausted, that sort of thing. Brethren, don't miss the point for us. When we get tired, when we get weak. When we get tired and exhausted is when we usually let our guard down. When we get tired and weary and weak is when we typically get to the point that we're going to make some dumb deal with the devil. We're going to wind up making a decision or a deadly deal with the devil. And something I'd like for us to consider here, Esau coming in from doing what he loved most to do, if the pursuit of what brought him pleasure could put him in that diminished of a state, perhaps he needed to rethink his priorities. Did you hear that? If his pursuit of what brought him pleasure put him in such a diminished state that he was willing to make a deal to give up everything for nothing, maybe he needed to rethink his priorities and what he was doing with his time. Just a thought. Also, please notice that he was impatient, he was selfish, and he was very demanding. <coughs> Esau had a physical desire which he wanted to fulfill both immediately, notice it right now, I want it now, and at all costs. A deal which would, therefore, cost him everything. Folks, this is part of the old sinful nature that we need to put to death when we get into the baptistry and we rise to walk in newness of life. We need to make sure that we have put to death that old man of sin who says, I'm going to have what I want when I want it, no matter what it costs me. That's part of what we put to death, because if we don't, we're going to wind up making a deal with the devil that's going to cost us everything. 
Verse 31. Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Listen, Jacob was no fool. Jacob knew what the birthright in that family implied. Listen to what that birthright, that firstborn, was entitled to in Abraham's family. Number one, succession of the earthly inheritance of Canaan. Number two, possession of the covenant blessing transmitted through the paternal benediction. A lot of big words, but transmitted through the blessing of the father, which we know Jacob obtained deceitfully later on. The blessing of the father, as it were. Also, the birthright of being the firstborn implied the standing of being an original ancestor in the direct line of Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? In the, in the, in the family line of Abraham, each of the firstborn are mentioned with a prominent place down through. For example, in Matthew chapter 1, Verses 1 and 2, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Listen to this. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. If Esau had not have sold his birthright, that text in Matthew 1, verses 1 and 2 would read differently. It would say, emphasizing the firstborn, it would say the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Esau. But it doesn't say that. It says Isaac begot Jacob, even though he was the second one out, because that was part of what Esau gave up, was his birthright as the firstborn. How often, Bible class teachers, Sunday morning, Sunday school teachers, how often do you in your classes teach the story and refer to Abraham, Isaac, and Esau? You don't. You typically say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because Esau gave up that right. That was one of the worst deals in history. Under the Mosaic Dispensation, the privileges of the firstborn's birthright included some other things. Privileges of the firstborn's birthright in Abraham's family included the official authority of the father. The official authority of the father. Don't we see that with Jesus Christ in the New Testament? Didn't Jesus Christ, as the only begotten, as the firstborn of God, as it were, didn't he have the full authority of the father? Yes. And so Esau, given... When he gave up his birthright, he gave up the authority of his father in being that authoritative figure. The firstborn's birthright also included a double portion of the father's property. You know, often when we preach about the story of the prodigal son, we talk about the older son. We talk about why the older son shouldn't be upset when the, when the younger son comes back because the older son got a double portion in those days. The older son got... So if he had two sons... You divided your stuff three ways, and the older son got two, got a double portion, and the younger son only got one. Wow, Esau, really? For a bowl of soup? Are you out of your mind? But he gave up. Double portion. Also, 
Under the Mosaic Dispensation, another privilege of the firstborn's birthright included the functions of the domestic priesthood. In short, being the firstborn and having that birthright meant that you had the leadership mantle of the entire family in all of its facets throughout the future. All of it. See what a tragic deal this was for him? He gave up everything for a cup of soap. That's amazing to me. Look at verse 32. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Wow. You want to talk about an insane line of reasoning. Do you see what he's saying there in verse 32? He's saying, look, you know what? What is the point of having something pay off, even incredibly and unbelievably in the future, to a person who wants what they want right now to fulfill a fleeting physical need. That's what he's saying. What is the point of having this thing down the road that means so much when I want what I want, when I want it, and that want is right now to fulfill a fleeting physical need? Better yet, the line of reasoning could be from Esau. I am much more concerned with this momentary present gratification than I am with future glory. You see how this impacts us? You begin to see the terrible trade. You begin to see the foundation that we need to be aware of. How many people do we know in the Lord's church, younger or older, who have received the grace and the mercy of God and this relationship with God as a child of God, and yet, for a moment's fleeting pleasure, they've traded it all away. Do we know people like that? I do. This is why this story is not just an isolated story, but it has great bearing on us as God's New Testament people. Esau said, I am more than willing to trade my glorious future for a momentary fleeting physical gratification experience the likes of which is only going to reoccur again and again and again. This is another thing. It's like, okay, doesn't he understand that if he trades something as beautiful and something that carries on thousands of years into the future, if he trades that in for a cup of soup today because he's hungry, guess what? Tomorrow he's going to be hungry again, right? This is going to be a recurring, fleeting, physical, momentary gratification, and he's already traded away everything, he's going to be hungry again. So in the end, he's basically traded everything for absolutely nothing. You know what? The devil still works on us today to get us to make that deal with him. He still tempts us to make that same deal. Look at verses 33 and 4. Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. That was one costly bowl of soup. Let me tell you what. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. I want you to pay particular attention to that word despised. Thus Esau despised, despised his birthright. That word despised carries some meanings with it that we need to be aware of. The Hebrew word is bazaar, not bizarre, but bazaar. And I want to show you a couple other places it's used, and we'll begin to understand what it means to despise something, because 
means something maybe a little different than we would be aware of from the word today. Turn to me in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15, verses 29 through 31. Numbers 15, 29 to 31. You shall have one law for him who sins unintentionally, for him who is native born among the children of Israel, and for the stranger who dwells among them. But the person who does anything presumptuously, and what that means is willfully, they know what God said and they don't care. That's what presumptuously means. The person who does anything presumptuously, whether he is native born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord and be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off and his guilt shall be upon him. Please understand what it means to despise the word. We despise the word when we break the commandment. It isn't just that we toss the commandment away or reject it. The Bible defines that as despising it. Despise is a heavy-duty word. We despise the word of God just like Esau despised his birthright when we fail to give the word of God its proper place of prominence in our lives. Think about Esau and his birthright. He did not give it the proper place of honor. He did not protect it. He did not keep it. He did not understand its value. He did not, did not keep it in the way that he should have, but he traded it away for a cup of, a cup of soup. We despise the word of God when we do not give the word of God the proper place of honor in our full obedience in our lives, the Bible says we despise the word. So when people who know what the word of God says choose to make a deal with the devil by trading obedience to the word for a moment of self-gratification, God defines that as despising his word. We would see the same word despise, this Hebrew word in 2 Samuel 12. Please turn there. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning at verse 9, reading verses 9 and 10. This is after David has been found out about his sin with Bathsheba. Nathan the prophet comes to him. Look what it says in 2 Samuel 12, verses 9 and 10. Nathan says to David in verse 9, Why have you despised, same word, Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, you've taken his wife to be your wife, and you've killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. To knowingly go and do that which God calls evil, by the way, did David, you suppose, know the Ten Commandments? you think David knew what they said? I'm guessing probably David. As much, as much as he knew about God, I'm guessing David probably had a pretty good idea what the Ten Commandments said. But what did he do? He made a deal with the devil and he committed adultery. And when we do that which is evil in the sight of God, that's called despising his word. That's what David did in 2 Samuel 12, 9 and 10. And brethren... When we despise the word of God that way and we reject it and we disobey it wantonly, we make a deal with the devil and it does not end well. Didn't end well for Esau. Didn't end well for David. 
Not in this case. Let me give you a couple of other places to get this from. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Same word. We see that word despise again in Proverbs 13, 13 through 15. He who despises the word will be destroyed, but he who fears the commandment will be rewarded. The law of the wise is a fountain of life to turn one away from the stairs of death. Good understanding gains favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. The way of the unfaithful is hard. Those who despise the word. For those of you taking notes, it's a rather lengthy reading, and I won't turn there. We see the same thing in Proverbs 15, 9 through 33. Speaking of this idea of despising God, making a deal with the devil and understanding what that means to despise God. If we were to read Jeremiah 23, 16 through 22, we would see that we despise God when we disobey his word. We despise his word when we make a deal with the devil and trade it away by doing those things that we want to do for just a moment's pleasure rather than following what God said. Did you know in the New Testament we see the Greek equivalent for despising? If we were to read 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34, we would see that Christians are said to despise God's blood-bought church, verse 22. We despise God's church, verse 22, of 1 Corinthians 11, when we do not give it its proper place or priority when it comes to the way we worship and the way we serve within it. Bottom line is this. God's people sometimes are tempted to make a deal with the devil quite often because they are far more concerned with a moment's pleasure than with loving obedience to the priceless word they've been given. So they make a disastrous deal. They trade away their eternal inheritance, their birthright into the, do we have a birthright into the family of God if we're born again of the water and the spirit, do we? But yet some trade that away in a deal for the devil for just a moment's physical fulfillment. Philippians 3 in the New Testament tells us this. Turn there if you would. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Look what it says. Written to our brethren in the church of Christ in Philippi. Philippians 3, 17 through 19 says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk. Philippians 3.17. Brethren, join in following my example. Note those who so walk as you have for us a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you, even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. There's Esau. And whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. There's Esau. Paul said these people are set up and they made a deal with the devil. I want to share with you, just in passing, some other terribly disastrous belly-for-birthright trades that we see in the scriptures. How about this one? I'm not going to turn there. How about, talk about let's make a deal. 
How about when the Jews traded Barabbas for Jesus, saying, Jesus' blood be on us and our children, Matthew 27. Was that a pretty disastrous deal? Amen. What about when Judas traded Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? You want to talk about a disastrous deal? Hey, I'll take 30 pieces of silver for Jesus Christ. Deliver me chance. Okay. Have you ever... I want you to think about this. Have you ever considered 30 pieces of silver? I mean, we talk about dollars and all that. Have you ever considered in the Bible what 30 pieces of silver actually is worth? I can get you copies of this later if you want them. If you're taking notes, you may have to take them past. I'm not going to turn it in, but I want you to just think about this. Think about 30 pieces of silver. Think about the deal that Judas made to sell Jesus out for, to trade him for 30 pieces of silver, Okay. Approximately 2,000 years before that happened, Joseph's brothers sold him for 20 pieces of silver in Genesis 27 and verse 38. Joseph, just a regular human born, was sold for 20 pieces of silver. Now you put inflation with that? Chances are pretty good Joseph sold for more than Jesus did. In other words, Judas got nothing for Jesus, really. Think about this. In Judges chapter 16, verses 4 and 5, Judges 16, 4 and 5, the lords of the Philistines promised, listen to this, they promised Delilah 1,100 pieces of silver from each one of them if she would just betray Samson. Each one of the lords of the Philistines said to Delilah, we'll give you 1,100 pieces of silver from each of us. Jesus was traded away for 30 pieces of silver. During the siege of Samaria, I'm glad it's not fellowship dinner day. During the siege of Samaria, in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 24 through 29, the famine was so severe that a donkey's head sold for 80 pieces of silver. Think about that. The famine was so severe and these people were starving to death so bad that a donkey's head, there ain't a lot of meat on a donkey's head, right? A donkey's head sold for 80 pieces of silver and donkeys were unclean animals. Kaboot. But a donkey's head sold for nearly three times what Judas traded away Jesus for. Isn't that awful? In that same siege of Samaria in 2 Kings chapter 6, listen to this, it says, one-fourth of a cab of dove droppings, that's dove excrement, right? Like you clean off your car if you, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Okay. One-fourth of a cab of dove droppings sold for five shekels of silver. The siege was so bad that a fourth of a cab of dove droppings sold for five shekels of silver. Do you know why they bought dove droppings? Do you know why? To eat. To eat. It was that bad. It is reported that Josephus recorded that both animal and human waste was eaten during the sieges. You want to talk about the consequences of sin being really bad? That's really bad. But a quarter of a cab sold for 
one-sixth of the total cost Judas got for trading away Jesus. A cab is roughly a quart, so a quarter cab is a half a pint. A half a pint of dub dung sold for five pieces of silver. Judas only got 30 for trading Jesus. Judas made a deal with the devil and traded the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. That was the cost of a common slave back in Exodus 21, verse 32. Do you know what that figures out to in our money today? About 15 bucks. About $15 is what Jesus traded away, oh, Judas traded away Jesus for. And here's, as if that isn't disastrous of a deal enough, you know what Judas did with the 15 bucks for the 30 pieces of silver, right? You know what he did? He took it back. He said, I don't want this deal anymore. But you know what? Once the devil gets his hooks into you, he doesn't take that. You're still in the deal. It's not that easy to get out of. And so, Judas got absolutely nothing. And it cost him absolutely everything. It cost him his birthright into the family of God, it cost him as an apostle of Christ, it cost him his eternity. We have to believe from the scriptures, woe to that man who betrays him. The devil said, let's make a deal, Judas. He said, I'm there. He traded away everything for absolutely nothing. And we sit and we shake our heads at these terrible deals, these deadly deals, and we say, that's crazy, that's nuts, I would never do that. But again, I say, how many Christians have traded away their eternity for some fleeting earthly moment? Brethren, God warned us very straightforwardly in Hebrews 12, 12 through 17. He said, don't be like Esau, who sold his birthright. And afterwards, even though he tried to get it back with tears, he couldn't get it back. Once you've made a deal, sometimes it's impossible to get out of that with the devil. But it goes on in that passage in Hebrews 12, 12 through 17 to say, Therefore, let no root of bitterness spring up, brethren. How many people have left the Lord's church because they've gotten angry at somebody? How many people have left the Lord's church because somebody said something that upset them, and that's it, I'm just never going back. It says in Hebrews 12, 12 through 17, do not let any root of bitterness spring up where somebody will make a deal with the devil like Esau did, and they'll trade away their whole eternity. Just because they don't want to be offended. For a moment's feeling good about themselves. And I'm not going back and sit with that brother or sister. The brethren today make that deal with the devil. Sometimes, does it happen? I guarantee you, this week, maybe even this afternoon, maybe even this morning, because it's still prior to noontime, Satan is going to seek to tempt some of you to make a deal with him that you can't afford. Might be tomorrow morning, might be this afternoon. You may get away lucky and you may not be tempted until tomorrow afternoon. But sometime in the upcoming days, Satan is going to say to you in some form or another, let's make a deal. That eternity that you have with God and that relationship and that grace, hey, how about you trade that to me fill your belly, to make you feel better, to give you a moment's pleasure. Let's make a deal. Let's make a deal. 
and he's going to offer you something that looks pretty good on the surface. It's going to be hard to resist if you're choosing to walk by sight and not by faith. And probably it's going to happen when you're at your weakest. we got a busy weekend. we got stuff going on all over the place. We had, you know, Friday meals of love, and a lot of us were busy yesterday doing family stuff, and we got Tri-State this afternoon, we go back to work tomorrow, and we're busy, and we're tired, and there's a lot of stuff going on, and just like Esau, we're going to be exhausted, we're going to be weak, and that's when Satan comes the hardest and says, boy, have I got a deal for you, and it is when we are most susceptible it's going to be well designed to fulfill one of your deepest desires like he did with Jesus. Jesus goes 40 days without food, and what does is, what is Satan tempt him with? Hey, turn these stones into bread, because he knew that's where he was weakest. Jesus didn't fall for it. I want you to think about when Satan comes to you and he says, hey, let's make a deal. Or he says, hey, I guess that looks really good. You want door number one, door number two, or door number three? All you got to do is trade away. What God told you to do. All you got to do is despise your birthright as a family God. All you got to do is despise the word and turn away from it and listen to me. Satan's going to do that to you this week. Okay? You with me on this? When he does, I want you to think of this final verse that we're going to go to and then close. Mark chapter 8. Please turn there with me. I want you to think of this sermon. I want you to think of let's make a deal. And I want you to think of Mark chapter 8. These last few verses. When Satan says to you, let's make a deal. Trade it all and I'll give you something that looks good, but it'll cost you everything. Mark 8, verses 36, 7, and 8. Jesus said, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his angels. He said, what are you willing to exchange? What are you willing to give up? What kind of deal are you willing to make with the devil? When the devil comes to you this week and he says, hey, boy, have I got a deal for you. What you going to tell him? You hang on to what you got? Or will you give it up? morning if you're here and you've never obeyed the gospel, you've never been baptized maybe you've been baptized but not for the biblical reason of having your sins forgiven as it says in Acts 2 and verse 38 I don't know all of you, I haven't been here that long, I don't know all of you that well, I know most of you somewhat, but if there's somebody here this morning who's never repented and been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins God wants to call you out of the world wants to call you out and he wants to give you this incredible gift and put it in your hand, this gift of forgiveness. And he wants to give you his grace and his mercy. And he wants to pronounce you free and clean. But you may be sitting there thinking about that, and the devil's sitting there saying, hey, i got a better deal. You know, you're already good without that. Not according to God, who you've been listening to. If Satan is telling you right now, let's make a deal. Listen to God who says, I gave my only begotten son for you. That's how much I love you, and I want you in heaven with me. If you'll be baptized into Christ, if you have the need of the prayers of the church this morning, because Satan has been absolutely hitting you so hard lately, and life is difficult, and he's been saying, let's make a deal. And Not that you have succumbed to it, but life is hard. If you need the prayers of the church, we stand ready to assist you with that as well. If you have a need, please come to the front as we stand and sing.